DiscerningHearts.com presents Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Dr. Reno is the editor at First Things, a journal of religion, culture, and public life. He has also served as a professor of theology at Creighton University. His theological work has been published in many academic journals. Essays and opinion pieces on religion, public life, contemporary culture, and current events have appeared in Commentary and The Washington Post. He's also the author of numerous books, including Fighting the Noonday Devil. This series explores numerous facets of faith and reason in the life of the church and the world. Grounded on the work of giants such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed John Newman, Blessed John Paul II, G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and Stephen Barr, Dr. Reno helps us to open our minds to make the journey to our hearts. Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Professor Reno. Pleasure to be back. We are going to take a look at a document now that was penned by John Paul II, Fides et Ratio. Yes, Faith and Reason. Help us to understand the purpose of this particular encyclical. Well, I think encyclicals, they're meant as a way of communicating the teachings of the church. I mean, originally the idea, the whole notion of an encyclical is a circular letter. So it's meant, it's like when you hit the CC button on your email and you're sending it out to, to your, 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 the people on the committee of such and such. So it's really mm-hmm. addressed to and meant to go to bishops because it's the way that the Pope sort of conveys an important emphasis that he wants the bishops then to disseminate out to the faithful. Starting with Pope Leo XIII and, and in the 19th and 20th century, increasingly popes wrote them with the idea that they would be widely read and not just read by the bishops. And with John Paul II, I think he then in, uh, enhanced that quality. And his encyclicals tend to be addressed to a very broad audience uh, and meant to influence public sense of what the right way to approach kind of key questions in life mm-hmm. are. So it's an attempt to make the church a more articulate voice in contemporary culture. So this encyclical was meant to, um, I think, uh, say something about the role of reason in human life broadly. Not just life of faith, but human life broadly. And John Paul II and, and the current pope as well, are, uh, he was very concerned, and the current pope remains concerned, about the apparent pessimism that Western culture has about the power of reason. That seems very strange, right? We live in a scientific culture, surely, and we're very confident in our technological mastery over nature. Fair enough. But I think that I've seen with my students and, 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 and even myself, there's a kind of tentativeness about sort of moral questions, cultural questions. And we don't, we're kind of, this idea of relativism, uh, non-judgmentalism, it's all a matter of your opinion, and so on and so forth. So that you can, you can feel as though nobody really is engaging these sort of deeper questions about the purpose of human life, and so on and so forth. So someone, you know, you get college students together, and you want to get them to talk about abortion, they very quickly Want, um, adopt a position, well, I don't really want to tell other people what they're supposed to believe, or, or well, from my point of view, or 
uh, in my opinion. And so they interpret these sort of deep moral truths as a matter of opinion and not a matter of a kind of uh, fundamental truth about, about, um, about human life. So it's that kind of atmosphere that he feels is becoming increasingly dominant. And so this encyclical is meant to push against that tendency. Pope Benedict in the funeral speech for John Paul II uh, identified this as an important part of his ministry, and he spoke about the dictatorship of relativism as his terminology for this kind of culture. You're not allowed to actually have a kind of re- robust convictions. So to hold your beliefs very lightly, and uh, the idea of kind of critical inquiry is primarily being debunking, but not actually creating any kind of lasting conviction. That's the sort of atmosphere I think he's trying to write write. That, that, that's clearly the reason for the encyclical. Just in the simplicity of the name, faith and reason. So often, even in today's world, you'll read letters in the editor of a local newspaper that will say, well, of course, faith and reason are separate. It's just assume in today's culture that you cannot put the two to, of them together. Right. And now, typically, in the past, um, you know, in a, in a, in a culture of, of, of kind of confident, what I would call the kind of Promethean uh, culture, which is you know, Prometheus is the is the figure who takes the fire from the gods. And, and so it's the idea that the human person can sort of grasp truth and, and, and possess it on their own terms. A lot of people, that's the way we interpret modern culture, and a lot of folks do, and both proponents and critics of modern culture often say that. Um, but um, and in that kind of environment, so much the worse for faith, right? Because faith is credulous, whereas reason proves. Uh, faith is submissive, whereas reason is uh, independent, uh, and so on and so forth. And so faith and reason get juxtaposed against each other uh, in, in a, in a, and, so, and again, it's so much the worse for, for faith. And if you look at the way that um, the Catholic response to modern culture, um, you know, this has been an important theme, is to defend the intellectual integrity of faith against the claim that it's mere uh, opinion or mere uh, sentiment or mere submission. Um, but what we get in this encyclical, he, there's some of that in this encyclical, but we get in this encyclical is a very striking change. And here, John Paul II offers, offers faith's confidence in the possibility of truth as a inspiration to a, a culture that has less and less confidence in the power of reason. So it's a reversal. In the old days, it was, you know, the positivists or the, um, you know, the, 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 you know, the scientists or the philosophers saying, you know, hey, come on, you know, we can, we can work out a plausible, defensible view of how to live our lives. We don't need the church to tell us. And then the church has to push back and say, no, there are things that we need to know that can't be known but for by revelation and so on. You make the apologetic argument. But now we've got this change where we've got a culture that where there's an increasing pessimism. No, really, we, there are no right answers. And here you've got uh, uh, John Paul II saying, no, but wait a minute. You know, this is what faith has to offer is a confidence that there are ultimate answers and that God calls us to, to seek those answers. And God has equipped us with the capacity to, um, to recognize the importance of, of truth. And they're obviously review, uh, natural truths that are accessible to us. One of the things that jumped out to me in initially reading this was in the beginning where he kind of tells us something we I think we already know, but we didn't know we knew. One of those aha things that 
revelation contains mystery. It's not necessarily something that just ends, but it has something more. And it's through the revelation and the use of our reason we begin to understand, and it breaks that open. I mean, one of the sources of pessimism is the idea that, hey, look, you know, um, uh, we're animals, right? And so we are. Um, and in, in the sense that we're embodied, we have instincts, we have all these things. So there's a tendency for us to sort of say, well, we're merely instinct. And so it's all a matter of self-interest or it's all a matter of uh, bodily needs or something like that. And so different kinds of philosophies can, can sort of poo-hoo the sort of higher aspirations of, uh, of the mind as delusions, you know, fantasies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that what the only thing they are is uh, the kind of uh, our attempt to manage in some way the the complexities and, and, and conundra of these purely physical needs and desires, um, and one of the uh, one of the uh, so poetry and all these other aspects of of Western culture that has this kind of aspirational attempt to reach for something that is uniquely noble about the human condition. Um, is kind of under threat by these kind of reductionistic views of human life. And this is a point at which I think John Paul II talks about how uh, the church is, has a very important vocation as a servant of truth uh, to, to, you know, um, hold up to people the, obviously the ultimate nobility of the human person is our call to fellowship with God. I mean, nothing could be more uh, exalted. And that this gives some inspiration, even to the unbeliever, that they should hold on to their, they should trust their belief that there's something uniquely noble about the human person uh, vis-a-vis non-rational animals. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we are, we do share a fellowship with uh, animals, clearly. And we do have instincts. We do have, you know, my dog gets hungry and I get hungry, and I get grouchy when I'm hungry, and my dog gets grouchy when mm-hmm. she's hungry. So I obviously share with uh, a kind of fellowship with, with my dog, but we shouldn't be deceived by that and, and think that we're merely uh, more sophisticated uh, dogs, that we know we have a, we are created the image of God, and that this gives us a desire for something that is spiritual in nature. And John Paul II thinks that's part of what the service that the church can offer in our, in our era, in our time, is uh, is a is a encouragement to the unbeliever. So here's an apologetic I think that he has in mind. That's not an apologetic that brings a person into the church. Uh, although I mean, surely he wants that because mm-hmm. that would be a fulfillment of of the human person to to enter into uh, to uh, I mean, Christ perfects and fulfills um, uh, all, all all of created uh, reality, but. Instead, the apologetic is, is designed here to give encouragement to the unbeliever. And the encouragement is sort of, you know, a uh, uh, dream. You know, that's the way I would put it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he talks about the importance of recovering a genuine metaphysic, gen- genuinely metaphysical philosophy. It can be hard for Americans sometimes to really understand the sort of quasi-poetic quality to a lot of European philosophical tradition. Um, that I think he's driving at there. Um, but I think what he means by genuine metaphysical range is asking the big questions and having confidence that, uh, uh, sure, uh, without revelation, and Thomas Quince points this out, without revelation, we will not receive a satisfactory 
answer. We cannot fab we cannot cogitate our way to the ultimate uh, uh, end for which we were created. Um, uh, but we certainly can um, see the outlines of. Uh, I mean, we know we can know that we are meant for some something higher. We can know that death is not uh, is not at the end of the day, what we are made for. Uh, I mean, everybody feels mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, why weep at a funeral? You know, what's, 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 what's so wrong about death? I mean, isn't that just part of the natural order? You know, we have to, that's just the way that nature works. Uh, but we rightly say, what? no, no, that's not, there's something about being human that's just not, doesn't fit with death. So we can see that, we can feel that, we can, we can reflect on that intellectually. Now, obviously, um, you know, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, death is punishment for sin. It's, it, it tells us in a very direct way that death is not what we were created for. But as a philosopher, one can, um, one can, one can think about uh, the nature of death and the nature of finitude and, and, its, and its relationship. And he's trying to encourage that uh, in, in, in our philosophical culture as opposed to kind of this reductionistic approach. It's interesting you mentioned Thomas Aquinas, but you also kind of feel Bonaventure when you're reading this as well, because in that desire to go deeper, to go ahead and, as you said, dream, but to explore that and to believe in it, trust in it, that you actually are seeing something. He never mentions St. Bonaventure. It's very interesting. Uh, He does mention St. Thomas and works with his uh, ideas in, in some detail. Yet one has the feeling at the end of the day that for 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 Pope John Paul II, faith is a is a deepener of the intellectual gift, the gift of the intellect. God God gives us this gift of reason, and that faith is a deepener, and that's its greatest contribution to contemporary culture. So it's not so much that the church tells the modern university professor truths that he or she would not know otherwise so much as the faith is a kind of crucial um, witness to the possibility and the need for uh, uh, intellectual ambition, uh, intellectual uh, synthesis, however, however halting, however partial. And that's very Bonaventurian, I think. It's that idea of, of, of deepening and, um, and intensifying um, uh, rather than expanding. You know, you can add knowledge, that's great, but there's also that sense of deepening the significance of it and also giving oneself the courage, you know, it's, it's uh, courage, mm. you know, that uh, is, um, I, I think it's actually under, we don't recognize how much courage it takes to think about the meaning of life. So it's, there's all, we set ourselves up, we might actually change our minds, which is a painful thing. I think, yeah, <laughs> and I think, too, in today's world, it's, takes courage to go there and it also takes time you have to give yourself the opportunity to be able to think and but, to meditate uh, yeah there's kind of a busyness that uh, overtakes us uh, and um, this is a good example of how we often I think the life of faith is multifaceted and so in the words to go to to go to daily mass and to take that time out of your day and you know, that's not reading a book of philosophy. It's very different. But nonetheless, what you're doing is you are kind of saying no to this kind of relentlessly, the sort of relentless kind of practical demands of life, which often claim to be 
um, non-negotiable. Like I, I have to do this. I have to do that. Um, and we can. And so it's it's a it's good training for us. And so if we can do that, then why can't we? Why can't we read a book in the evening? If we can tear ourselves away from the uh, hurly burly of life for that thirty minutes of daily mass, <clears throat> then obviously we've shown ourselves we can do the same thing with our intellects. Uh, so I think that that um, um, and and again, um, you know, John Paul II is sensitive to this kind of embodied, lived faith, and not he doesn't think of the relation of faith and reason being there's the faith of the church, which is you know the catechism is a kind of presentation of the of the beliefs of the church the faith of the church understood as the beliefs of the church but there's also the faith of the church as uh it's kind of lived uh, obedience to god and so he john paul ii i think had a very holistic view of uh of the way in which the christian faith humanizes both the individual and also uh, uh the culture in which it in which it flourishes and I'd highly encourage listeners out there who want to pick up a copy of the encyclical, you can, it's in book form, but you also can go to the Vatican website yes. and be able just to uh, download it or to read it, Fides et Ratio, because in it, there is such an encouraging word for the everyman that John Paul gives us that this type of philosophy isn't just for an academic and that it is for every man and every woman to be able to in some way practice a philosophy that gives us meaning for our own lives. Yeah, I think that he identifies two kind of crucial reasons why we all we all should sort of try to think about our lives and not just to live it but to think it think or think about our lives. Uh the first is inward and the second one is outward. Inwardly uh, uh you could think of it this way. If we think about our lives, in some sense, we gain some sort of intellectual, I don't want to say control because that's too manipulative, but some sort of intellectual orientation to the reality of our lives. And this facilitates the penetration of our beliefs more deeply into our lives. Mm-hmm. So you think about it as kind of uh, you've got to sort of organize your room, you know, or you organize your office. And when you organize your office or your room, you're able to work more efficiently. So similarly, this kind of having a philosophy of life, not like a highbrow, you know, uh, as you pointed out, some academic exercise, but actually trying to sort of have one that actually makes sense. You know, what is my, what, what is my view of, uh, uh, of, of getting old? You know, what is my view of death and its significance in, in the human condition? Uh, have I ever thought about, uh, um, you know, uh, what the world is for, you know, uh, these kind of questions are, are worth kind of contemplating. And that facilitates the penetration of the teachings of the church more deeply into our souls, if we do that. That's very important, and he identifies that. And the second is this outward idea that, you know, this is part of the way in which Christians can, can contribute to uh, uh, culture. Not everybody's called to do this. I mean, you know, we're all called in some way to do it. We're all called to feed the hungry and visit the prisoner and clothe the naked, you know, the uh, corporal works of mercy. But there's also a way in which, especially in our age, I think of uh, kind of what I would think of as kind of cultural confusion. This is an opportunity or an important uh, vocation for Christians is that they can actually speak articulately about the purposes of human life. Uh, we see this, obviously, this has made a big difference in the abortion debate. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the capacity of, uh, uh, especially Catholics here, uh, uh, took an important leadership role. Evangelicals, tremendous contribution in terms of commitment, but not always articulate about why this is such an important issue and how to think about it. But the Catholic tradition has helped people see the sanctity of human life. And that was philosophy. That was a kind of philosophical clarity about, about what it means to be a person that, um, that penetrates into our culture and humanizes it and has converted, not necessarily converting people to the church, but has converted people to uh, a pro-life position, um, which has happened evidently. Polling data suggests that uh, the younger generation, uh, that opposition to abortion increases the younger you get which suggests that this message or this way of thinking has percolated into um, our culture at an important level. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a kind of mission of uh, service. And, and as I said, he identifies that one of the church's vocations is to be a servant of, of truth. And we're all called to do that. Philosophy, of course, uh, the love of wisdom has such a profound place in this whole encyclical and even more so at the end where he talks about the seed of wisdom and just a, a beautiful reflection and a beautiful prayer. Yeah, it's very striking. I gave a paper a few years ago or on, on this. I ended with this uh, kind of pointing out how odd it is to appeal to the Virgin Mary as the sort of patron, patron of philosophy. I mean, you think, okay, St. John's Gospel, that beautiful metaphysical language, or St. Thomas Aquinas or Bonaventure, the folks that we've been talking about, why is, what's, what's Mary's role here? Um, and I puzzled on that one. Uh, it's very enigmatic at the end, uh, as it, often he ends his encyclicals with the meditation on the Virgin Mary. Uh, good Polish uh, Catholic uh, <laughs> piety there mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, is... Uh, something from which I'm sure uh, we could draw a tremendous wealth of spiritual insight. Uh, but in this particular instance, I think what he's driving at here is this. Mary receives from God the vocation, obviously, of bearing uh, uh, the, the, um, the eternal son. And, um, and, and that this, and it, what we get in the Luke's gospel, she, she receives, she accepts what she cannot understand. I mean, it's, as it says. And um, so she is the patron saint in a certain sense of receptivity, uh, trust, trusting receptivity. Uh, and I think that I, as I meditated on this and thought about it, uh, I thought what he's driving at here is that I think is to, that we should, it's not, I mean, it seems like the message here is to trust r reason. Uh, I'm wondering at the end of the day whether isn't it sort of to trust reality, that truth, I mean, so it's not so much our power of reason that's going to renew, you know, culture or something like that, but it's the power of truth itself. You know, you, and I think scientists are, are often very aware of this. They're very aware of the way in which the world pushes back, you know, at, at, their, at their wrong ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and they're also aware of the willfulness of uh, our theoretical um, approach, right? Mm -hmm. We try to push our theories, push our theories, but the world, the world pushes back. And that that's a gift, the, the power of the world. And so, there's, so that we have to have this more, we have to open ourselves and allow ourselves to, to receive uh, the truths that, that nature wants to teach us, the truths that the human condition wants to give us, 
uh, and obviously the truths that God wants to give us in the church. So in all three of those areas, I think he's, he's encouraging this sort of spirit of, of kind of trusting receptivity rather than this kind of, again, back to this idea, this kind of culture pessimistic way in which we, we close ourselves off cynically, critically, iron, with irony, whatever we do, these various strategies we use to almost throw up a defensive armor against this kind of depressing possibilities of truth. Because, yeah, we say we want to know the truth, but we, we don't necessarily want to know any of them that actually cause us to change our lives. <laughs> no. Our time's just about up, Professor Reno. Any final thoughts on this encyclical of our late Holy Father? This certainly, as I said, is a issue that's been very near to the heart of the current Pope. Um, I do think that things are going to get worse before they get better in Western culture. Uh, um, we, if, if you're right, and it does take courage, I think you are right, uh, it takes courage to really encounter truth in all of its fullness. Uh, there's a kind of self-protective uh, quality to Western culture, right? And, uh, it's a, and it's an insulation of itself from, uh, from truth. This kind of cynicism and 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 uh, relativism that is uh, a matter of concern, I think, to uh, to Catholic teachers broadly, and as I say, uh, Pope Benedict as as, as well. Um, I think I think it's going to be um, something that's going to be increasingly a matter of uh, focus for us moving forward. Um, you know, so certainly an issue of concern for me as an academic, as a teacher. Uh, Mm-hmm. That I often think that the scientists again are my best allies in the university. They really believe in truth. Mm. So as opposed to some of the other faculty who, you know, you begin to wonder. I mean, and I think this is this is this that's what we all you can't you can't submit yourself to the truths that God reveals if you're unwilling to submit yourself to any other truths. <laughs> Very so, well said. So yes. you go to the laboratory and realize that, you know, hey, it's not up to me. I mean, you know, the results of the experiment are not up to me. It's, it depends on what the facts are. This is an important way in which we anticipate our relationship to, uh, to God uh, in Christ, which is it's not up to me. It's up to what God wants for me or what God calls me to do. Um, and so that... That truth, the transformative truths of faith, uh, we have to, um, we are prepared for those in, in, our, in, our, uh, in our love of and respect for truth in the natural world, I think. Thank you so much, Professor Reno. Great. Good to be with you. You've been listening to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno.